Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is where we will be this morning. 1 Samuel, we're going to begin in chapter 1 and verse 1. And I'll read that in a moment. I will say I, I debated long and hard about... So if you remember through Mark's Gospel, every, every morning I would read the passage. Um, and that, that was kind of the pattern, which I think is helpful to read the Scriptures publicly and then, then preach through them. And this morning we're going we're gonna to cover over a chapter and a half. And I thought, what do I want to do? Do I want to read it all? Do I want to read it during the sermon? What? So, so bear with me. This morning we're going to read through the whole passage. It's five minutes and 24 seconds is what it's going to take me. I, I timed it. Um, but, but we're going to do that because I think that's helpful to, to get the big picture. And then as we work through, and we'll, we'll do that. So I'll read that in a moment. Um, if I get lots of negative feedback, then we'll change that. But that's how we're going to start this morning. Um, so, so 1 Samuel chapter 1, let me, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on introduction, but since this is the first uh, message in the books of Samuel, I'm going to give you some, some basic, um, basic outline or, or some basic foundation as, as we move forward. So, so I'm just going to say two things by way of introduction. First, the context. And so First and Second Samuel, which by the way was, was originally one book, the book of Samuel that's been, been broken up, but it, it's, it's one um, story. And in our Christian Bibles, the Bible that you have, uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel comes immediately after Ruth. Okay, that's because the, the Christian Bibles followed this, the Greek translation of the Bible, which, which had this urgency or, or, or maybe this, this need to get it chronologically. So, so from Genesis to even Revelation, they try and go chronologically as best they can. And so Ruth 1.1 says this took place in the, in the times of the judges. So they say, okay, it's happening in the judges. We're going to put it right after the book of Judges. Well, the Hebrew Bible... Um, originally Samuel came right after Judges. So the context, and that's really helpful because Judges transitions perfectly into Samuel. Samuel is the perfect follow-up from Judges. If you know anything about the book of Judges, the time of the Judges, it was not an ideal time for Israel. There's this cycle of, of they, they, would, would be, um, they would be captured, oppressed, they'd cry out to the Lord, he'd send a judge, a deliverer, Samson, or um, uh, there's some others, the Ehud, a left-hand, so he'd send a deliverer, he'd deliver the people, they'd be good for a while, but then they'd fall back in, and then they'd cry out to the Lord, then he'd deliver them, and it's just this unending cycle, and the theme of Judges, the last, the last verse in the book of Judges says that there's no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and so part of the, 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 the problem with Judges is there's no leader, there's no king, so everyone does whatever they want, and so the main issue in Judges is no king, which sets the stage for Samuel because Samuel, First and Second Samuel, is all about the monarchy becoming a reality. So in Israel, when Samuel starts, there's no king, but by the time it ends, it's, it's the greatest king in all the world who's ruling Israel. So, so Samuel, the books of First and Second Samuel, mark this change, this sweeping change um, in, in the life of Israel. So at the beginning of First Samuel... Israel, the nation, it's this loosely organized federation of anemic tribal territories, scarcely able to keep the Philistines and other enemies at bay. That's, that's what we're going to see at the beginning. But by the end of 2 Samuel, however, Israel, under King David, had become the most powerful kingdom in the eastern Mediterranean region, strong at home and secure abroad. It's this huge, massive kingdom. So that's a, that's a sweeping change. At the beginning of Samuel, Israel is worshiping at this nondescript shrine, and there's this corrupt priesthood, as we'll see next week, 
Um, but in the last chapter of 2 Samuel, David has, has purchased this site in Jerusalem on which the Temple of Solomon is going to be built. So that one of the greatest buildings in the ancient world is going to soon be built. So, so just this transition, this change that happens. And so this sweeping change occurs in Israel primarily through the rise of the monarchy. So that's the context. It's all about the kingdom, uh, the, the monarchy rising. And then second thing I'll say is, is the characters. So this sweeping change from, from the beginning of Samuel to the end takes place really only through three characters. So the whole, the whole thing from Samuel 1 to 2 Samuel 24, there's really only three main characters. So the first one we'll meet this morning is Samuel. So he's going to be the king maker. Okay, he's going to be the one that, that the Lord uses to, to, to anoint the kings. So, so, so there's Samuel. His start is, is what we record or we read about this morning. Then the second character is Saul, who's the first king. So this isn't Saul that becomes Paul the Apostle of the New Testament. It's long before. This is King Saul, the first king of Israel. Samuel goes and, and anoints him. He becomes the first king. He's, he's the abortive king. He doesn't last long. And then finally, after Saul, comes David, the third character. And, and the, the majority of Samuel is about David. And then that even 2 Samuel 24 ends at the end of David's life. And then as we get into First and Second Kings... David transitions to Solomon, and then it's all downhill from there. Um, but, but it's Samuel, Saul, and David. Those are the three characters that, that, that take center stage in the books of Samuel. And so the books of Samuel record the rise of the monarchy in Israel through the lives of Samuel, Saul, and David. Okay, that's the summary statement. So, so hopefully you're set, um, ready to, to go. But just as we, be, as we begin, it's important to, to realize the context, because we're going to see the birth of a, a boy named Samuel, but Samuel, right, it's a big deal for Hannah, we'll see, it's, it's big for her, but it's an even bigger deal for the nation of Israel that Samuel is born because the role that Samuel will play, uh, I mean, the birth of Samuel marks the beginning of the process of God's ruling his people through his anointed king. And so it's all starting right here, it's, a, it's an unusual beginning, but this, this birth is going to have huge ramifications for the future of, of life in Israel. Okay, so let's, let's look for Samuel 1. Beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read um, 1 Samuel 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. So follow along as I read. 1 Samuel 1, 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from the city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. One day when Elkanah sacrificed, on the day he would sacrifice, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her even though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously and irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Hannah was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord, and she wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow, and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, 
then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Verse 12, and as she, con- as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being a drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. There was early in the morning they worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Verse 21, the man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Chapter 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord, for there's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who had many children is forlorn. The Lord kills, and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low, and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, this is, this is your word, and this morning I have no power of my own to speak anything. The word that you put in my mouth, that I must speak. And so I have a burden this morning to speak your word, and so as I stand before your people, I pray that your word would be heard 
and that your word would be heeded. I pray that the idle would be admonished, that the faint-hearted would be encouraged, and that the weak would be helped. Father, I pray that those here who are not your people, I pray that your word would have converting power, that your spirit would awaken dead hearts and give sight to blind eyes. You and you alone are able to do all these things, and so we ask that you would do so for your own name's sake. Amen. Well, we're not going to work verse by verse, so I'm not going to say something about every verse, so, so take heart, it's okay, take a deep breath. But we are going to, we're going to walk through, there's, there's four sections, I, I broke this passage, these two chapters down into four sections, and so we're going to work through those. So we're going to see first a barren woman, verses 1 through 8 of, of chapter 1, and then a soul poured out, verses 9 through 18, and then thirdly a son is given, that's verses 19 through 28 of chapter 1. And then finally, the fourth section will be Hannah's prayer or Hannah's song, those first ten verses of chapter two. <clears throat> Let's begin here. <clears throat> a barren woman, verses one through eight of chapter one. <clears throat> so in these verses, we're, we're introduced to a, to a pretty average Jewish family. Okay, that this is just a, a, a regular old woman and a regular old man, but this family has a problem. So you see the husband, Elkanah, we find out in verse two, he has two wives. And that's a problem that never goes well, but, but his first wife is Hannah, his second wife is Peninnah. And the problem at the end of verse 2 is that Peninnah has children, but Hannah has none. Okay, so that's the problem. The, the problem that this family faced was, was that of barrenness. Hannah couldn't have kids. In fact, it's likely that the only reason that the second wife was brought in was because Hannah couldn't have kids. And that's, that's probably the, the reason that there's two wives, but, but so here's these two wives in this family. <clears throat> and so we ought to recognize just at the outset, that, that for a married woman to be barren, that was, that was a tragedy in, in their time and culture. Hannah's inability to have children was a big problem. It would have been a source of, of shame and distress for Hannah. One author says that barrenness in ancient times was the ultimate tragedy for a married woman, since her husband's hopes and dreams depended on her providing him with a son to, to both perpetuate his name, but also to inherit his estate. And so Hannah can't have kids. She's, she's failed as a wife, she can't provide a son for her husband. And so Elkanah marries Peninnah, who can and does provide him, not just with a son, but notice sons and daughters, multiple. And so good news for Elkanah, I, I can have kids. That's not so much good news for Hannah. So, so in verse 3, you notice every year, this, this husband, Elkanah, would lead his family to Shiloh, to their place of worship. And it'd be once a year to, to sacrifice to the Lord. And when he would get there, he'd give... He'd give uh, Peninnah and her children portions. So as they go, part of, part of the sacrifice is they'd all offer meat. Okay, that'd be part of the sacrifice. So he'd provide his family with meat. So he'd give some to, to his, his second wife and all the kids. But to Hannah, notice verse 5, he would give a double portion. It says, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So even though she could not bear children, he kept her and he loved her. I mean, you think about, about um, Isaac and Rebekah. Like he, she was his true love. He loved her despite her bareness. But, but notice what would happen. Every year, they'd go to Shiloh. Look at verse 6. Her rival, that's Peninnah, so, so Hannah's rival would, would provoke her grievous, grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So every year, as they're making their trek to Shiloh, her, her rival, this other wife, the second wife, would provoke Hannah and, and, and would shame her. And so Hannah, the result, would, would weep and weep and weep. And when they got there, she wouldn't be able to eat. She was so distraught. Hannah's rival took special delight in using this, this annual pilgrimage to Shiloh 
as an, as an occasion for continued provocation, badgering her, even to the point of tears. And so it doesn't say exactly how she provoked Hannah, but we don't have to think too hard about it to get an idea. I mean, just think, it's probably these, these little offhand comments. So as they're going, maybe on the trip to Shiloh, Peninnah would say, Hey, Hannah, uh, since you don't have any kids, and I have so many, could you help me kind of get them to, to Shiloh? I mean, you don't have any, and since you don't, you're, you're free, so you can help me because I have so many. Or, oof, that was a long journey, especially because I'm pregnant. Being pregnant is so hard to make that journey. Don't you, don't you know, Hannah? Oh, you don't, you've never been pregnant. But if you, if you ever were, you would know that's a hard journey. Or maybe conversations with, with her kids. Oh, sweetie, I don't know why Miss Hannah doesn't have kids. It must be for some reason. God, God is clearly not letting her. I don't know why. But she doesn't. Every time they go, this is what happens. She's provoked. Whatever the specifics, the verses make clear that Hannah is in distress and her rival is provoking her and won't let her forget that she's barren. She's a tragedy. She's worthless as a woman. She's provoking her every journey. And her, her distress reaches its climax this time of the year when they go to Shiloh. Every time they'd go to the house of the Lord, the story would end the same. Hannah outside weeping, refusing to eat. And so this section closes. I mean, it's a good-hearted question, but, but all the women in here can testify. It's an insensitive question from Elkanah in verse 8. He sees his wife distressed, and he says, well, Why do you weep? Well, why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Why are you resentful? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And it's good-hearted, but, but insensitive. Husbands, we've all been there, haven't we? Your wife is inconsolable. You just want to say something to help. You hate seeing your wife in, in tears and weeping. We should learn from Elkanah that sometimes it's just better to say nothing. <laughs> right? just, just sit with your weeping wife. Just be there. She doesn't want you to fix it. Just sit there. Just, just be with her. Well, so, so before we move on to the next section, let me, I do think there's an application here. Um, from these verses, I think we see the, the very simply the way that God works. The way that God works is, is the application. Because look in verses 5 and 6. These verses where, where this, they, they record the height of Hannah's despair. And it said twice in verse 5 and then again in verse 6 that the Lord had closed her womb. Right? The Lord did it. There's no question about why her womb was closed. The Lord had done it. This wasn't judgment. It wasn't because of her sin. It wasn't a declaration of she's worthless. This was the Lord's doing, and he had done this. And so the well, first thing we see about the way God works is he works in mysterious ways. Most of the time in, in this situation and in similar tragic, I would say, situations, we'll never know the specifics. We'll never know exactly why the Lord closes wombs. But we can't miss the sovereign purpose and presence of God in the midst of life's sufferings and tragedies. Right? There's purpose, and, and the Lord's presence is with her in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this tragedy. I remember in college, there's, there's a, a classmate of mine who got, the, who got word that his dad had suddenly passed away, unexpected. So I remember that very night, we go over to his house, a whole group of us, all these Christians, this community goes around, and we're just praying for him. I don't remember much of what was said, but one thing, I, I don't remember actually anything, except for one thing that was said was there was a, a, a man, I still remember the guy who prayed this, and the midst of his prayer, he said, we don't know why this has happened, but we know, God, that you're good. And so sometimes that's all you have. I don't know why. So, so Hannah, why is she buried? I don't know. Why can't you have kids? Why aren't you married? Why, why, why? I don't know. But, but I do know that God is good. 
And there's purpose in your suffering, in your tragedy. Time and time again throughout Scripture, throughout the history of, of the lives of the saints, God is enough. Sometimes he's all you have, but that is enough, Christian. His promises are enough. I mean, I, I, just, I just wrote down Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. If God is for us, he would say later in chapter 8, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things, even if it's a barren womb. It's from the hand of a loving God. Or, or last, he, he ends that section in Romans 8. Nothing, not death or life, not angels or rulers, not things present, things to come, not powers, not height, not depth, anything else in all creation, not barren wombs, not death, not tragedy, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is enough. We, we, have, to, we have to stand on that. If you're not in tragedy, if you're not, if you're not asking those hard questions now, get ready because the day's coming. And I want your roots to go deep so you know God is good. Whatever this is happening, I don't know why, but I know God's good, and he's for me. And so he works in a mysterious way in the, in the midst of seemingly hopeless situations. God is there. Right? The God of angel armies is always by your side, Christian. So take heart. But the second thing we, we see about the way God works is that he works through insufficient people. Oftentimes the best thing to come out of these experiences um, it's not necessarily the solution we want, but, but the best thing, rather, is often that we come away knowing our need for him. We come away knowing, I am weak. There's no way I can do this. There's no way I could have done that, but, but he is strong. I was not sufficient for, to walk that path, but, but God was with me, and he was strong, and, and I got through. Sometimes God providentially orders our lives in such a way that we go through things that drive us to see and experience the sufficiency of his grace. And so on the front end, we say, hey, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. In fact, I know I can't. I don't know how I'm going to be able to handle this. I don't know, I don't know why God has done this. I, I feel like God's forgotten where I live. So that's on the front end, but, but, but we find in those, in those times, those situations, God's grace is enough. Even when the womb's not opened, his grace is enough. When we find ourselves at the end of ourselves, that's when the Lord tends to work the most. One author says, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop that he delights to use for his next act. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. So that's where we find Hannah, with questions and at the end of herself. She has nowhere to go. Which brings us to our next section, verses 9 through 18 of chapter 1. So notice, the, the soul poured out. So, so the family, they've, they've eaten, they've drunk at Shiloh. Hannah's misery reaches its peak again, just like the year before and the year before and the year before. So notice verse 9. She, she has nowhere to go. She's weeping. She's not eating. She walks by Eli, verse 9, who's, who's the high priest. So he's sitting at the, at the, in this chair at the entry. So he's kind of, he's kind of the, the guard of the temple, kind of overseeing what's going on. So he's sitting there. She goes right by him. In verse 10, she was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord, and she wept bitterly. She goes to the Lord. Notice her prayer in verse 11. First notice she refers to God as the Lord of hosts. Do you see there in verse 11? O Lord of hosts. Now this name, this name, Lord of hosts, this has not been used by any other character in the Bible up to this point. This is the first time. Lord of hosts. So, so Hannah is the first one. And it's a name that literally means he who creates armies. 
The Lord of hosts is, is the God whose universal role encompasses, encompasses every force or army, whether heavenly, cosmic, or earthly. Every army is under his control. The Lord with total resources of the universe at his hand. That's the Lord of hosts. Mighty, powerful. And so Hannah calls on the Lord of hosts. And when she does so, does so she's highlighting the might, the power, and the sovereignty of the Lord. And this name, I mean, if you think about it, it would make more sense from the mouth of Joshua or, or Gideon or some other mighty warrior, right? The Lord of hosts. But here, Hannah at Shiloh addresses the Lord of hosts, the cosmic ruler, the sovereign of every and all power. And get this, she does so assuming that the broken heart of a relatively obscure woman in the hill country of Ephraim matters to him. He said, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, care about my situation, right? This barren woman from the hill country. You see that? Lord of hosts, why would he care about her? That's why she prays. She assumes he cares about me. She cries out to God, recognizing he can do something. There's no thing too hard for the Lord of hosts. And notice also, she three times throughout this prayer, she refers to herself as the servant. I'm your servant. I'm submissive. Whatever you do, I'm okay. I'm your servant. I'm here. I'm serving you. Answer my prayer. And as she cries, she says, remember me. Remember me. Remember me. Answer my prayer. And her hope as she prays is that God will remember her. Right? Me, this, this small woman, barren woman, remember me. So she, she's, she's basing her hope on the fact that he will take notice of her in her unique situation. And if she does, if he does, notice she makes a promise. She says, if you will, if you answer me, if you'll remember me, if you'll grant my request, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my child right back. If you give me a son, he's coming right back to you. All his life, he's going to be yours. That's kind of her, 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 her prayer. And notice while all this is going on, so that, that's happening here in the temple. Now, while all this is going on, verse 12, Eli is sitting there watching. So this high priest, this spiritual man, the leader of Israel, he sees her lips moving. He can't tell. He can tell that she's saying something, but he doesn't hear any words. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Now, now as we're reading that, we know his conclusion's wrong, right? He's wrong. We know Hannah's story, but, but I think the narrator, the person recording this, wants us to know that Eli should have known he was wrong. Eli, who is the chief priest at Shiloh, can hardly be excused for his spiritual insensitivity. So here's a high priest who he sees a woman. Now remember what she's doing. She's pouring out her soul to the Lord. The first thing he thinks, she's just drunk. Right? How, how spiritually insensitive. So we'll see with his sons next week. We'll, we'll see. It'll be really clear. But Eli is not a good high priest. He's portrayed as a man who's unable to distinguish between appearance and reality. The same will be with his sons. You'll see he's a lousy father. He's a lousy high priest. And he sees this woman pouring out her soul. And he says, oh, she's just drunk. Right? We're, we're to see he is spiritually blind and unaware. So the peasant woman from the hill country knows God better than the high priest. who doesn't seem to know him at all. And so after misdiagnosing the situation, Hannah tells him, no, 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 that's not the case. I'm troubled. I haven't, I haven't been drinking. I haven't been pouring cups in, into me. I've actually been pouring my soul out. I've been speaking of my great anxiety and vexation. And so Eli, recognizing her faith and maybe recognizing his wrong, sends her with a benediction. He says, the Lord remember you. Go go on your way. In verse 18, notice as she leaves, it says that she ate and that her face was no longer sad. So think about this. When she goes into the temple, she's weeping, she's crying. Why is she she so upset? What What is she so distressed about? 
Right? She, she's being provoked, but fundamentally she's barren. Right? The Lord has closed her womb, and she can't take it, so she cries. She cries and pours out her soul, asking, please give me a son. Please give me a child. That's her cry. And as she leaves, it says that she, she ate and she's no longer sad, verse 18. And so my question is, what's changed from the time she entered to the time she leaves? What's changed? I can tell you what hasn't changed. She's not pregnant. She's not pregnant yet. She's still got Peninnah in her house. Her circumstances haven't changed. Right? She enters. She's weeping. She leaves. She's no longer sad. And her circumstances haven't changed. Yet, she leaves elevated and transformed. She goes out and she eats the festival meal. And so I think the application here, secondly from the second section, is the cure for troubled souls. I think we see a cure for the troubled soul here in the midst of her trouble, in the midst of her distress, in the midst of her sensing no hope. Hannah poured out her soul to the Lord. This isn't, this isn't a distant Lord who doesn't care for his people. Right? We hear, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he was far removed, he didn't care. Well, this says otherwise. Hannah cries to him, cries to him, and he cares for her. So she, she's communing with him, praying, crying, pleading. And though he's rightly called the Lord of hosts, he cares for his people, even the people that, that we would consider irrelevant, a barren woman for Ephraim. So Hannah's heard and remembered. And so her troubled soul leads her to cry out to the Lord. And so Christian, your troubled soul ought to be like that, that snooze button from your alarm clock. right? Maybe yours is longer. Mine's eight minutes. So every eight minutes, right? So, so our troubled soul ought to be like that snooze saying, cry out to the Lord. Forget about eight minutes later. Cry out to the Lord. He cares for you. He can take your burdens. Do it. Do it until you do. Until you wake up. Our Lord can handle our tears. It won't make him nervous or, or ill at ease if you unload your distress at his feet. He can handle it, Christian. And as we'll see, even though Hannah does, so later she, will, she does get pregnant. She does have a child. The Lord does eventually grant her a request, but I don't think that she leaves the temple because she's convinced that God's going to answer her positively. I don't think that's what's changed. I think she walks away from the temple in peace because she's cast all her cares on the Lord. She, she's poured out her soul. She's got nothing left to tell him. She's told him all that she wanted. I'm sure there's anger in there. Why? Why her? Why do you have to marry her? Why can't I have... I, I'm sure it was all emotions, the whole spectrum. I think as she leaves, she has a peace that passes all understanding. She's pleaded her case with the Lord. She knows he's able to do all things. He is the Lord of hosts. But she walks away knowing if he answers affirmatively, praise him. But I think she should also say if he doesn't grant her request... Praise him the same. He's still the Lord of hosts. And for whatever reason, he's decided not to grant my request. And so I think we all ought to learn a lesson from Hannah. We ought to experience a similar freedom before the Lord in times of, of need, in times of distress. We ought to let Hannah be our schoolmistress to instruct us in communion with God. Learn from Hannah. Go to the Lord in, your, in prayer. Pour out your soul to him. Let's move on. Number three, verses 19 through 28. A son is given. So we see in verses 19 through 20, the Lord remembered Hannah. He did. He remembered her. And she has a son. The Lord does, in fact, open the womb and enable her to conceive. And she names him Samuel, which, which is somewhat of a play on words because Samuel doesn't mean to ask, but, but the, the consonants from Samuel are in the same order, in the same consonants of the verb to ask. Okay, so that's the play on words. And so she says, I named him Samuel before I asked. So there's similarity between those two. But then verse 21, the story shifts to, to the fulfillment of her vow. Okay, Hannah, the Lord remembered you. 
Now, what are you going to do? Right? How, how hard is it? Does she remember her vow immediately? Like from the, the time she realizes she's pregnant, she's thinking, oh, no, I shouldn't have said what I said. Right? So, so it shifts. Is she going to do what she said? Verse 21, it's time of the year for the family to, to go up to Shiloh again. Hannah doesn't want to go. She says, let me wean him, which, which would be age two to four, anywhere in between them. She wants to wait. And the reason is because she wants to make that trip and, and leave him there. She wants to fulfill her vow. She says, let me wait until he, until he doesn't need me anymore, and, and then we'll go, and I'll leave him there, and, and I'll give him to the Lord. And so she waits, and in verse 24, the time finally arrives. And so Hannah and Samuel make the trip to Shiloh. They go, and Hannah presents Samuel to Eli, reminding him, I'm the one. Remember, I'm the one that, that, that nine months ago or, or a year ago, however long ago, I, I was the woman, and, and now look, the Lord gave me this son, and I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's, he's the Lord's. So she fulfills her vow. Hannah does. She's the faithful one here. She fulfills her vow and gives Samuel back to the Lord. And so before we move on to our last point, let me, uh, another application. I think we see here, I won't belabor this point, but I think there's an application that, that there's a proper response to God's gifts. I mean, just a proper response. God, this is a gift. Hannah receives a gift of a son from God, and immediately she turns around and gives the gift back to the giver. Hannah's worship, she receives, she receives the son, then her worship gratefully rehearses God's gift and places that gift fully at God's disposal. So she receives it and says, he's yours, open-handed. The great gift of a son we see was never only about Hannah. Right? She took great joy in having a son, I'm sure, but at the end of the day, the gift was about God and his purposes, and so she gives him back to the Lord. And the Lord does mighty things through Samuel. Hannah wasn't given a son to keep to herself. In the same way, you and I are not giving gifts from God for the purpose of, of keeping to ourselves. Right? So, so how do we receive God's gift? God's gifts to us are for the good of others, for us to give away, whatever it looks like. And so I think specifically, if you're here and you're a parent, I think we can especially learn from Hannah. We ought to, we ought to consider our kids lent to the Lord. We have to consider that there's something for us in recognizing that the gift of our kids, they've been given to us for, for one purpose. One purpose, that they, they might know God and live their lives in his service. That's why if you're a parent, you've given a child so that that child might know God. Right? God said, this parent, this husband, this wife, this mom, this dad, that's the person I want to, to raise this child. You've been given a gift, and you ought to use that gift to, to fulfill its purpose, you have to give that gift back to God and, and ensure to the best of your ability that that child lives their life for God. The purpose that your parent is that they might know God and live their lives in his service. We have to prioritize the spiritual lives of our kids. And can I just say, as a parent of young kids, I need your help. Church, if you have great-grandkids, if you don't have any kids, if you're part of this church, you're responsible for helping me raise my kids. And so please, help. Please. <laughs> Right? They're, they're my and Jancy's responsibility, but, but you as a church, you're responsible. He's in. She's in this community. And so please take an interest in the spiritual development of my kids. If you want to know how you can do that, come talk to me. I'd love to tell you. <laughs> so then lastly, we close. Hannah's prayer, chapter 2, verses, just the first 10 verses. Hannah's song. So, so maybe your, your translation says Hannah's song. This is Hannah's response and so in these 10 verses, just quickly moving through, there's, there's three stages, and it's the transition. So notice verses 1 through 3, Hannah begins with, with this personal experience. She says, my heart exalts, my horn is exalted. 
and then it warns against the proud and the garrant, but it's a, a personal response. She has been delivered. She did, she's experienced the Lord's salvation that he's answered her prayers. But then verse 4 through 8, there's an expansion so that she says that her experience is, is representative of a larger pattern that's at work in the world. So specifically, the way that the Lord works in the world, the way that he deals with, with his people, with, actually with humans in general, with his creation. So notice all, all of the positives and the negatives of how God works in the world. So the positive, the feeble are made strong, the hungry are satisfied, the barren give birth, the poor are raised up. The Lord brings life, the Lord makes rich, the Lord exalts. So all these things the Lord does. And then the negative, right, it's not just all, all, all one side, right? There's the other side. The Lord, negatively, the mighty are broken, the filled are empty, the fruitful are now fruitless, the Lord kills, the Lord makes poor, the Lord brings low. And the point of verses 4 through 8 is simply what the Lord has done for Hannah, the barren has now been made, has been made to bear fruit or can now bear kids, what the Lord has done for Hannah simply reflects the tendency of his ways. That nothing is too hard for him. Right? He, he can bring the lowly up and he can put the, the high down. Right? He can do whatever he wants. The prayer's emphasis on the Lord's exaltation of those devalued by others serves not only as a testimony of God's action in Hannah's life, right? the barren has been made to, to bear, but, but now, so, so she... It also foreshadows the Lord's ways in the life of the nation of Israel. I'll say more about that in a second. But it's as if Hannah is saying, I was ready to fall and the Lord gave me strength. I was barren, he made me fruitful. I was poor, he made me rich. But, she says, that's not really surprising. That's just the way he is. Right? This is Hannah's reflection on the ways of God in the world. Then, then lastly, in verses 9 and 10, finally, these two verses, she concludes her prayer by looking forward. So there's this, there's this future looking to the day when the Lord will ultimately vindicate the righteous and judge the wicked. That, that's kind of this, this forward-looking, right? All will receive what they deserve. The Lord will ultimately vindicate the righteous and will judge the wicked. The faithful ones will be guarded, kept by the Lord, but the wicked will be cut off. The enemies of the Lord will be broken into pieces. And then in verse 10, notice the last part. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. How? He will give strength to Who? Verse 10, his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed one. Which leads us to our last point of application with the mention of the king, right? That word king and the Lord's anointed, we see the hope of Hannah's song. So when Hannah's praying this prayer, when she's singing this song, there's not a king. There's no king. Remember, the king's coming, right? Her son is going to anoint the first king. And so she's praying the Lord's going to do this by his king, and there is no king. But she knows the Lord is going to raise up a king and she's going to lead his people through his anointed king. He's going to provide a king for his people. And so Hannah's story, God's answer to Hannah's prayer, it's certainly important to Hannah and Elkanah. Right? That, that's important. She has a child. That, that's big for them personally. But, but the bigger picture is that Israel, so, so Hannah's barrenness is, is, is a representation of, of Israel's barrenness. And in the same way that, that God meets Hannah and provides for her Israel is without a king, and the fact that the Lord remembered Hannah plays a crucial role in the establishment of the monarchy in Israel. Hannah's story serves as an illustration, a picture of God's larger dealings with Israel. So, so it, everything's on, on display here. Samuel's birth is a turning point in Israel's history. As Hannah acknowledges in her song of praise, her deliverance from her oppressed condition foreshadows what God will do for the nation in the years that immediately follow. 
Through Hannah's son Samuel, God will once again revive his word to his people, give them military victory over hostile enemies, and establish a king who will lead the nation to previously unrealized heights. So, so in the same way that God met Hannah, he's soon going to meet Israel. But as we'll see, it's not Saul, it's not David, it's not Solomon. Ultimately, who is the Lord's anointed, the king that Hannah's hoping for? It's none of those. Though she would be long gone, in a grave, right, a day was coming when the king of the Jews, the, the king of Israel, he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. People would cry, Hosanna, Hosanna. He'd be welcomed. Not long after, he, he would be raised and ruling and ascended at the right hand of the Father. But, but b- between the entry and the, and the ascension, this king would, would be crucified. He'd suffer. He'd die. But after his, after his resurrection, he'd be raised and be given all power and authority. And he's the king that Hannah was hoping for. He is the anointed one. And so the Lord remembers his people. The Lord rem- that's the point. That's what, that's what you leave here. The Lord remembers his people. He remembers Hannah. He gives her a son. He remembers Israel. He gives them a king. But most importantly, he remembers his people and gives them his son. To be their king, yes, but, but more than that, to be their savior. To die in their place. A sacrifice, a substitute for them. It's a lesson from Hannah in these verse, first chapters of 1 Samuel is that the Lord remembers his people. And so we ought to cry out to him. We ought to trust him. We ought to follow him. Let's pray.